You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. So if you were here last week, one of the things we talked about is... Uh, prayer in the life of the church. And we looked at the book of Acts and we saw an episode in which Peter was in prison and how the Lord answered the prayers of the church and the Lord sent an angel to free Peter from prison. And then there's a little phrase, you remember, that we finished off on where we saw that the church was, the word of God was fruitful and multiplied. And so as we think about what we're praying for, because we're spending these next couple weeks in intentional prayer as a church, as we prepare to publicly start our ministry to the community, I wanted to take this morning to really chew on a little bit about what it means to be fruitful according to the scriptures. And to do that, we're going to begin by looking at Genesis 17, 1 through 8. So read along with me and I'll read it for us. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name, Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be, uh, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as your word is open and as we are eagerly awaiting to hear from it, Father, we pray that your spirit would come, that you would open up our minds and hearts to perceive and understand the truths that are before us as we look throughout all of the scriptures this morning to see what it truly means to be fruitful. Lord, how that has been a vision for humanity from the very beginning. And Lord, how it is in Christ that we truly fulfill that fruitfulness command as we are fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with followers of Jesus. So Father, we pray already, Lord, that you would make Redemption Church fruitful. And Father, we pray that we would define fruitfulness in accordance to your word and your word alone. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So what does it mean to be fruitful? I mean, I think this is just such an important question as we think about the church, because what does it mean for a church, a local church like us, like we're about to be as Redemption Church, what does it mean for us to be fruitful? And how does fruitfulness fit in with God's plan of redemption and the gospel? How is fruitfulness connected to what Jesus has done? How do we define fruitfulness? After all, defining fruitfulness is important because success and fruitfulness are, are connected in our minds. So if fruitfulness means in the church, bigger attendance, bigger budgets, uh, 
bigger buildings, if that's fruitfulness, then a fledging attendance, a stagnant budget, a mediocre building, or a lack thereof, right? That communicates failure. So thinking through this idea of fruitfulness is so important because as we prepare to plant Redemption Church, we want this church to be fruitful. I hope you want that. I hope you desire that. I know I do. But we have to be very careful about what do we mean by fruitfulness? What does that really mean? So in light of that question, I want to preach a a little bit of an unusual sermon by walking through the entirety of the Bible, tracing out this theme of fruitfulness from Genesis to Revelation. Now, that's quite a commanding sermon. That's going to be intense. So I hope you're, you're buckled up and ready. It's going to be quick, rapid fire. But I think we need to trace this theme throughout the Bible to really understand about what, what is true fruitfulness according to God. And as we look carefully, we see that this theme of fruitfulness is all over the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. So that's my ambition to you this morning is in about 40, 45 minutes to preach to you the entire Bible and to walk through the scriptures together, tracing this theme of fruitfulness. So what I'm attempting to do is to provide you a biblical theology of fruitfulness. So this is a little bit different. If you've heard of systematic theology before, this is where you try to take all the passages of Scripture, you kind of dump them in a bucket that fits with that theme, and then you try to organize it into categories. The biblical theology is a little different. It's tracing a theme throughout the narrative of Scripture, watching as, as it develops as God further reveals himself throughout the Bible. So we want to examine this theme of fruitfulness together. So this morning, I'm going to walk through five plot points in the biblical narrative concerning fruitfulness. And then I'm going to conclude with three application points as we think through fruitfulness in the church. So it's an ambitious message. So I hope hope you're ready, okay? So let's talk first about fruitfulness throughout the scripture. And the first plot point I want to drive home is the creation imperative for human fruitfulness. We see this in Genesis 1. This is the passage we read at the start of our service today. So as God creates the world, we see that the climax of the creation account, it culminates in the creation of human beings. These human beings whom God makes in his own image. Human beings, we see, are given a place of priority to rule, to reign, to subdue the created order. In addition, we see that God uniquely creates humanity to have relationship with him as his image bearers. And so guys, as God is pouring out his glory in creation, God intends for that creation to return back to him in human praise. That's why God created the world was for his own glory. So tied up with this idea of the image of God and our creation, God gives us this responsibility, this expectation, this mandate of being fruitful as humanity. So if you've got your Bible, look at Genesis 1. Flip over there real quick. It's going to be a little bit like Bible drill this morning, but all these passages should be on the screen. But let's look again at Genesis 1. Let's look at what God says. 
Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We see there, don't we? That command to be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply connected to our creation and the purpose for which we were made. So this creation mandate comes, right? Because God creates human being, the expectation is that this first couple, Adam and Eve, would not just be the only couple, that there would be more of them and that they would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So though creation begins with two human beings, Adam and Eve, he intends eventually that the whole earth would be filled with his image bearers, these human beings who would give praise and honor and glory to God alone. That's God's intention. This is the aim in which God has created the world, to fill the world with happy human creatures who tend and take care of God's world as they lift up their voice together in praise of God. That's why God created humanity. Of course, as we know, this plan goes awry, doesn't it? As human beings disobey God, as the first man and woman consume the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and their rebellion into sin leads them to be cast out of Eden and cast out away from the fruit of the tree of life. And after sin has entered into the world, fruitfulness becomes hard. It's no longer easy as God intends it to be. So a woman must now struggle in great pain as she gives childbirth. Ladies, can I get an amen, right? The man struggles with fruitfulness as well. Fruit will no longer come from the ground easily. It now comes through the sweat of his brow. But nevertheless, God's original vision for his human creatures remains. They are to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. However, it doesn't take long. As you read Genesis, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, if you've read Genesis before, you know, it doesn't take long for this sinful spiral of humility to kind of spin into a vortex, a tornado, if you will. Before long, humanity is so wicked, so numerous in their wickedness that God grieves the fact that he ever created the world to begin with. And so for God, we see something interesting as Genesis progresses. Fruitfulness is not just about quantity for quantity's sake, but rather human beings are to be fruitful and multiply so that they would be worshipers of God and that those worshipers of God would grow in number. So as humanity grew, wickedness grew along with humanity. There's a problem with humanity after the fall. So God destroys the world by flood, effectively reducing the population of humanity down to Noah and his family. So God takes the fruitfulness and says, this is not the type of fruitfulness I wanted. Let's start over with Noah and his family. But even still, Noah and his family replicate the same pattern, don't they? The fresh start still has sin involved. Sin still lingers. And this is encapsulated in the scriptures by a drunken, naked Noah in his tent. 
Sin is still around. Sin is still in the hearts of humanity. So after the flood, it becomes evident that humanity, is, they're going to continue to multiply. They're going to continue to be more human beings. But it will take an act of God, an act of grace, to produce good fruit from humanity. And that leads to the second plot point, as we see in the Bible, the promise of fruitfulness. The promise of, of true, of good fruitfulness. So as the, the biblical narrative progresses, then enters Abram. And God chose this pagan man to be an instrument of promise and of his grace. God made a covenant with Abraham to use him to produce good fruit from humanity, fruit that would multiply in number. Look at Genesis 17, the passage we read at the start of the sermon. Look at the promises here. Verse one of the passage. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. You see the promise of fruitfulness is given here of true fruitfulness and it's given to Abraham. And of course, that promise would come through his long-awaited son, Isaac. And we see throughout the book of Genesis that God is faithful in preserving the lineage of Abraham. And though corruptions and failures in Abraham's family become all too apparent, God, God continues to preserve them. He upholds his promise. And so before long, the people of Abraham are living in the land of Egypt. And as Exodus opens up, we see the the author of Exodus, Moses, emphasized that they're fruitful, that there's a ton of these Israelites on the land. So if you look at Exodus 1-7, you don't have to turn there, but we see that it records, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So the people of Israel, the promise, right? The people of promise are fruitful. They're growing in number. They're accomplishing the promise that God gave to Abraham. And their fruitfulness became a threat. They're a threat to Pharaoh in Egypt. So much so that he made plans to slaughter their firstborns, to keep the Israelites under the oppression of slavery. However, you know how the story goes. God, by his mighty arm, brings the people out of Egypt and into the promised land. And as they prepare to enter the land, we see again the, the theme of fruitfulness come up as God gives them instructions to be fruitfulness. And God makes it clear that fruitfulness comes only in obedience to his law. So, so look over at Deuteronomy chapter 30. So flip there over there in your Bible. Deuteronomy 30, verse 9 and 10. Here's what it says. 
The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all, your, in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book, this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Right, so as Deuteronomy is coming to an end and as the people are preparing to enter into the promised land, all appears to be right. Everything appears to be good. God's chosen people, the people of promise, are now in the land of promise. And from there, we can recreate Eden. The people are there in the land, in the promised land. They can be fruitful and multiply here through Israel. The whole earth can be filled with worshipers of the one true God. Now in the right land, the vineyard of Israel should grow and thrive and multiply and produce good fruits. However, it doesn't take long for the vineyard to prove itself barren and fruitless. And that leads to the third plot point I want to draw out this morning. The barrenness of Israel. The barrenness of Israel from the following passages. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 5. Because after a cycle of judgment and deliverance and judgment and deliverance that tends to define the history of the nation of Israel, the cyclical pattern is one of disobedience and God's unwavering commitment to his promise by his grace. He's faithful to his people, though they're unfaithful to him. And the prophet Isaiah describes the Lord's frustration with Israel, describing Israel as a vineyard who refuses to bear good fruit, despite the care of the Lord. So look at Isaiah chapter five, starting in verse one. You can turn there, it'll be on the screen. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. You see, Israel, like all of humanity, like you and me, it failed. It failed to be fruitful. Though they could grow in number, they could multiply. There was a lot of Israelites. The fruit, the Lord says, was not good. It was sour. It was wild. And so we see the recurring problem of humanity becomes increasingly evident. They can be fruitful and multiply. Sure, we can figure that part out. But the fruit that we produce is bad. It's wild. It's sour. Because rather than humanity giving praise and honor and glory to the one true God, we rebel into sin time and time and time again. 
the Old Testament reveals that the problem of humanity isn't biological reproduction, but spiritual reproduction, right? That's the problem. Spiritual reproduction. What's being reproduced throughout each generation is original sin, the inherent depraved wickedness that's found in every human being from birth. Found in you, found in me, found in my children. It's there. That's the problem. Our human hearts are the problem. However, despite this bleak news found in Isaiah chapter 5 that God is going to be destroying his vineyard Israel, Isaiah gives hope in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 2. Here's what it says. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So God says, what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to take an ax to Israel. I'm going to cut it off at the stump, starting over yet again. But he's going to start from the stump of Jesse, from the line of King David himself. Isaiah prophesies and predicts that there would be a branch that would be truly fruitful not just in quantity, but in the quality of its fruit. And of course, we know that this prophecy points towards the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, because Jesus is the true child of promise. He is the true son of Abraham. He is the true son of David. He is the true Israel. And so through Jesus' earthly ministry, we see that he is painfully exposing the religion of the nation of Israel as barren and desolate. It's not fruitful. They think it is, but it's not. And Jesus directed the bulk of his attacks towards those who thought they were being fruitful, but they were only producing bad fruit. The leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. So John the Baptist, who prepared the way for Jesus, said this, in his firm rebuke of Israel's leadership. This is in Matthew chapter three, verse seven through 10. This is what John the Baptist said. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our fathers. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist and Jesus himself anticipates that judgment is coming. The ax is being laid to the root of the trees and the trees that do not bear good fruit will be cut down and they will be thrown into the fire of eternity and judgment. And Jesus is that ax even as he is the branch from Jesse. Jesus said, Matthew 20, 12, 33, he said, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. So the ultimate picture of Jesus's judgment against the barrenness of Israel is expressed in a kind of a strange passage in which Jesus curses a fig tree in the New Testament. You can read this in Matthew 21 verse 18 through 22. Let me, let me read this for you again. It's on the screen. So this is an account in the gospels. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. 
And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So I don't claim to be an, an expert in horticulture. That's not my expertise. I barely passed botany in college, okay? So take this for a grain of salt. But in my, my research concerning fig trees, I've discovered that there, there are actually two kinds of fruit that the tree produces. So as the leaves come on the tree, on the fig tree in early spring, they, they produce these little nodules that provide nourishment to weary travelers on the road. It was common for them to kind of pick them off as they traveled across the road. And that seems to be what Jesus is looking for as he comes up to this fig tree. So the real figs wouldn't come till weeks later. So these fig trees often fooled travelers like Jesus because Jesus would see the tree from the distance and it would look fruitful. It would have lots of leaves and Jesus would have expected to find these little nodules that would have provided some, some nutrition on the road. And he knew that the figs were not yet fully in season. But however, he knew that if the tree produced these nodules, he really couldn't under, see the, those nodules until he got closer to the tree. And when Jesus got closer to this fig tree, he found out that, yeah, it's nice and bushy and green from a distance, but up close, these nodules had not produced themselves. So it looked healthy from a distance, but as Jesus gets closer, he realizes that something's wrong with the tree internally. It has a disease that prevented it from producing these nutritious nodules. So Jesus seizes on this opportunity to teach his disciples about the fruitlessness of Israel. The fig tree illustrates Israel herself and the problem with man-centered, man-made religion. Because you can look healthy from a distance. You can look like you have it all together, but close inspection reveals that there is no fruit. And Jesus uses the tree to illustrate the problem of hollow and spiritual fruitless religion. But even as Jesus critiques the fruitlessness and barrenness of, of false religion, we see the fourth plot point that Jesus teaches us what fruitfulness really is the true vine and fruitfulness, the true vine and fruitfulness. So it takes the root of Jesse, right? Jesus himself to show us what does it really mean to be fruitful? And as Jesus teaches us, he shows us what true fruitfulness means. And in order to be truly fruitful as humanity, it means that we must be connected to the true vine. And only when we abide in Jesus are we truly fruitful in our lives? So look at John 15, verse 1 through 11. This is such a, an important passage that Jesus teaches on here. John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may be bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing." 
If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But this, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love." These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So there's a lot in that passage we could spend weeks untangling. But, but let me pull out a few observations. One of the key things we see that Jesus teaches is that we cannot bear fruit by ourselves. You can't be fruitful by your own efforts and your own self-power. Good fruit only comes when we are united to Christ and when we live our lives in his abiding love. Through Christ, the Holy Spirit fills our hearts, uniting us to God. And as we're united to Christ and united to the Lord, then and only then can we produce good fruit in our lives. And these are the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law, Galatians chapter 5 says. So Christ not only permits us to produce quality fruit in our lives, Jesus also spurs on the quantity of the fruit. Not only does Jesus allow us to produce true, righteous, godly fruitfulness when we abide in him, it also multiplies and extends and is fruitful in a quantitative sense. In other words, abiding in Christ means that we bear good fruit and then that fruit multiplies as other people hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So look, listen here from Colossians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, and indeed, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. So as God saves a people through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, he gives us new hearts, hearts that now abide in Christ. And through abiding in Christ, then and only then can we produce good, true fruit in our lives. And yet that command to be fruitful extends and is expressed in the Great Commission. As we go into all the earth as the church, filling the whole world with worshipers of God from every tribe, language, and nation. The Great Commission is an extension of humanity's original command in Genesis 1.26 to be fruitful and multiply. The Great Commission is the means by which God will do that, in which the whole earth will be filled with worshipers of him. Because it is only through Christ, the true vine, that a fruitful and healthy humanity is born. Only in Christ. So in Jesus, we see God's original vision for humanity is restored through the death and resurrection of Christ. And that leads to the fifth plot point, right? As we see abundant fruit in the age to come. So now we're jumping forward in time. 
looking towards the end of the world. As the church embarks on its mission to be truly fruitful, as we look at it to be filled with the Spirit of God, we, we see a glimpse of the end of the age, and we see the culmination of this great harvest that is to come. Look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and following. Let me read it for you. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and all around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. I mean, look at the fruitfulness there, right? Look at the multitude that has expanded fruitlessness of such number that no one can count it. There's too many to count. There's too many people as people from every nation, every tribe, every language. They're all gathered together, worshiping Christ, giving glory and honor to God. And so as we look towards the end of the world and what God is doing from Genesis to Revelation, we see that, that God's intention is that Eden would be restored as God will dwell with his people. And through the forgiveness of Christ and the grace of God, we will one day be able to partake of the tree of life again. John picks up on this language in the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is where all of creation is moving towards. We see Eden is restored in Revelation chapter 22. Humanity is with their God, but there's no longer just two of them. There's a whole sloth, a multitude of humanity. There's fruitfulness and multiplying, and there's lots of people. But we see that the people are numerous, yes, but these are people who are abiding in Christ and producing good fruit and worship and honor and glory to God. And we see as John describes that they will eat of the fruit of the tree of life once again, which yields its fruit each month of the year. We will have unceasing access to the good fruit of the tree of life as we dwell with our God. The whole earth will be filled with worshipers of God and the glory of God will be returned unto him as the bountiful feast of praise is given him by a redeemed and fruitful humanity. All right, now take a deep breath. Whew, that was a lot. <laughs> so we traced through from Genesis to Revelation. What does fruitfulness mean? What does it truly mean to be fruitful according to the scriptures? That was a quick sprint through the scriptures, tracing that theme. And I know that was exhausting. It was exhausting for me to preach. I'm sure it was exhausting for you to hear. So now let's kind of back up a little bit and, and kind of debrief from what we've learned as we've looked throughout the scriptures together 
And let's think through how do we apply this? How do we think about what does it mean for the church, for us, for redemption to be fruitful? Let me give you three application points to draw out from what we've we've seen. First, the church sows for numerical growth. It sows seed, scatters seed. We should sow for numerical growth. Fruitfulness, just in its plain basic meaning, means numerical growth. Now, part of our mission as a church ought to be to expand the vineyard of God. Right, to expand its boundaries as more people come into the kingdom, come into the vineyard, as more people come to abide in Christ. So as the Lord saves, as we take the gospel to reach the lost and as we share them within the good news of Jesus Christ, the hope is that more people would be added to the number of the saints giving true worship and praise to God. So through the perspective of God's glory, right, we should long, we should desire You and I, we should desire to see more worshipers join and worship to God. We should desire that more people are called out of darkness and into the light. That more people are called out of fruitlessness and called to fruitfulness. In other words, the desire for numerical growth is not a bad desire as long as that desire is grounded in zeal and passion for the glory of God, not in our own vanity and pride. And that's where the rub is. That's where the tension is. And I'll warn in just a second about the idolatry of numerical growth in just a bit, which is a particularly present danger in the church today, particularly the Western church. However, I think we do have to be on guard against overreacting against the growth idolatry that plagues so much of the church. You see, in rejection to this church growth impetus and consistent idolatry, some churches pride themselves on being small numerically, of being a faithful remnant, of not reaching anyone. And they look at their smallness and they say, well, look at us, we're We're being faithful. Now, I firmly believe that size is not an indicator of whether a church is healthy or not. And I think to make it one is a mistake. But nevertheless, we should not make smallness a virtue. (laughs) Smallness may be cause of faithfulness to God. And I think as our culture is becoming increasingly antagonistic to the gospel, we might very well see some of that in a lot of churches as people are offended and appalled at the gospel we proclaim and the Jesus we love and serve. So sometimes, particularly in other countries where there's a lot more hostility, smallness might be the cause of faithfulness to the Lord. We don't want to dispel that. Or smallness might just be plain evidence of evangelistic disobedience, right? We're not telling anybody about Jesus. We're not reaching the lost. We're not engaging with people who don't know Christ. So as we prepare to plant Redemption Church, we should pray that the Lord would give us numerical growth, that the Lord would add more souls to the kingdom of God through our witness, through our testimony, through our evangelistic efforts. That is a good thing to desire. Sure, in every church, there's some transfer growth from other churches that people shuffle around. That that happens, and we're not gonna spurn or turn any of that away. But our aim for numerical growth should be reaching the lost with the gospel. That's our desires. 
We should not be trying to attract disgruntled Christian consumers, right? We don't need those. We want to reach the lost. So rather, godly numerical growth focuses on engaging the lost with the glorious good news of the gospel of God's grace. And as God saves, as he redeems, as people are called out of sin into the light of his glorious grace, the church ought to grow in number. It should be fruitful. This type of gospel growth should always be the prayer and desire for every local church. This is something we should be praying for. This is something we should be expecting. This is something we should be working towards together. And may we pray for it now and long for it and work towards it that God would bless Redemption Church with numerical fruitfulness. It's not a bad thing to pray for. In fact, I think it's a good thing to pray for. And that leads to the second application point is the church tends for good fruit, for good fruit. So on the flip side, numerical growth doesn't mean that we are producing good fruit. Those don't necessarily mean the same thing. As we've seen throughout the scriptures, even into today, God is concerned with the quality of the fruit, not just the numbers of it. There are mega churches all across our country who have thousands and tens of thousands in attendance who gather together to hear rotten preaching that bears bad fruit in their lives. That doesn't please the Lord. I mean, it's not hard to attract a crowd if you know what you're doing. I mean, any marketing whiz can drum up a formula to get a crowd to show up. However, the prayer is that those who belong to the church and who come to the church are there because of the gospel and that they've been transformed by the grace of God. This means that if the church, or the people in the church aren't abiding in Christ, the church will not be fruitful, not in any spiritual sense, no matter how many people show up. If the church isn't abiding in Christ, then, then what's going on there? What, you might be multiplying, you might be fruitful, you might be growing in the thousands, but that is not pleasing to the Lord. There are lots of reasons people attend a church. And for a lot of reasons, and for a lot of people, the gospel just isn't one of those reasons, sadly, tragically. So a lot of churches, in their desire for numerical growth, which can be a good thing, but often becomes a mark of vanity and pride. Look how big our church is. Look how successful we are, right? That, that tends to be what it becomes. Not about God's glory, not about worshiping him, not about zeal. It becomes kind of about the pastor, about the leadership, about the church itself, promoting how great they are, particularly over other churches. So in a lot of churches in their desire, this idolatry for numerical growth, they begin to compromise biblical principles and they begin to minimize the offensive truths of the gospel in order to increase the size of the crowd. However, we must not hesitate to follow in the pattern of Jesus. And Jesus did not hesitate to thin the herd every now and then. In fact, quite intentionally. The size of the crowd, he would often turn on many of them away by preaching hard truths that people did not want to hear. If you doubt me, go read John chapter 6, where Jesus intentionally alienates the entire crowd and sends them all away confused <laughs> and even angry at him. So at Redemption Church, we will pray that the Lord will bring numerical growth, but at the same time, we will remain absolutely committed 
to preaching the whole counsel of God because we want our growth to be rooted in the gospel, in the grace of Jesus Christ, and we will refuse to compromise on the gospel in order to attract a crowd. It's a conviction that we will have and that we will hold. That leads to the third application point is that the church grows in Christ-rooted soil. The church grows in Christ-rooted soil. So I'm convinced, and I hope I've convinced you this morning, that the quantity and the quality of our fruitfulness are not opposed against each other. A lot of people like to act like they are, but I don't think it is. I think as you look at the scriptures, the two go hand in hand. True fruitfulness is good fruit, and it's a lot of fruit, numerically so, quantitatively. So in other words, the church can, and I think should, we should desire for it to be numerically fruitful, yet committed to producing good fruit. In order to do that, Jesus marks the path to do that. He shows us the way, this sort of fruitfulness that we long for. And as we've seen in John chapter 5, we must abide in Christ, abide in Christ. The more a church presses into our union to the true vine, the more we will experience fruitfulness in our own lives. That the more you and I as a congregation, as individuals, the more we expound upon God's grace to us in our sin, in our failures, the more we proclaim God's love for sinners through the cross of Christ. The more we discuss the hope of the resurrection, the more we proclaim the call to holiness and life in the spirit, then and only then will we see great gospel growth. The church grows by pressing in deep into its Christ-rooted soil. And so the more we as a congregation press into Christ, the more we will be truly fruitful as God desires us to be. So I pray that you will join me in praying that Redemption Church would be fruitful. Not fruitful in the way the world expects, but fruitful in the way God intends. And may we be so firmly rooted in Christ that God, by his grace, would give us great gospel growth. After all, this has been God's plan for his people from the beginning. May we, as Redemption Church, be fruitful and multiply. And may he make us exceedingly fruitful for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we are thankful for the Holy Spirit's instruction and construction of this word of God, where we can take this theme of fruitfulness and we can trace it out over all 66 books of the Bible and see, Lord, how you have always intended for your human creatures who bear your image to be fruitful, to respond to you in worship and praise. And Lord, it is amazing to see that even though we sinned and we fail and we rebelled and we are idolaters, Lord, yet still you have rescued us from sin by Christ, who is the true vine, the root from the stump of Jesse. And Lord, it's only in him that we can be fruitful, that we can be saved from our sins, that we can live the lives that you've intended us to live, that we can fulfill our God-given purpose to be fruitful and multiply. So Lord, I, I pray for anyone in this room who does not know Christ. Lord, that they would be convicted of their sins by your spirit. And Lord, that they would turn away from their idolatry. And Lord, that they would fling themselves upon your cross, upon Jesus. And Lord, that they would root their heart and lives in Jesus.
so that they might abide in him and so be truly fruitful. But Father, we pray this as a congregation, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would give us numerical growth, Lord, that we would see many over the coming months and years respond in repentance and faith and experience conversion and true salvation as they come to Jesus Christ for the first time. And Lord, we pray that these would be added to our number. And Lord, we pray that that would happen, not for our own vanity and pride and so that we can pat ourselves on our backs, but Lord, so that we might praise and worship you for your wondrous work of grace and saving souls. Father, we pray, Lord, that we would be a church that produces good fruit, that we would so certainly abide in Christ and press deeply into our foundation, who is Jesus, that we would produce the good fruit of holiness, of grace, of, of, of wonderful forgiveness in the lives of one another. Father, we pray that you would make us exceedingly fruitful. And Lord, we know that this could only happen, and it will only happen in Christ alone. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.